Lake Tahoe, the jewel of the Sierra. This deep blue alpine lake nestled in the beautiful Sierra Nevada mountains is a land of magic, wonder, and fascination. Welcome to Legends of Lake Tahoe, the podcast for those of us who always seek to know more. Hello, and welcome to episode four of our podcast. I'm Bo Johnson, and we are happy to have you back in the snow-covered mountains with us. And I'm Joe Johnson, and it's great to be back in the studio, as well as the snow-covered mountains. We want to say thank you to all of our listeners. We appreciate your support. We now present Legends of Lake Tahoe, Episode 4, Snowshoe Thompson. Segment 1, Norway to Nevada. Our story begins on a farm located near a tiny village on the north shore of Lake Tin in Norway. As the snows melted, buds sprouted, and blossoms bloomed, John Torsteinsen Rue was born on April 30th, 1827. John had a brother, Tostein, who was eight years older, and a sister, Kari, who was five. The Torsteins and Rue siblings grew up on the farm managed by their parents, Torsten and Gro, near the lakeside village of Osbigdi. Tragedy struck the Torsteins and Rue family in 1829 when John was only two years old and their father died suddenly and unexpectedly. The family managed as best they could over the next several years. Then, in 1937, John emigrated with his mother to America, while his brother and sister stayed behind. Gro and John landed in Illinois, but soon moved west to Iowa, where the family reunited two years later. Tostein and Kari had braved the voyage across the chilly Atlantic, and across much of the U.S. too, so they could all be together again. The family would make one more move together, this time to Missouri, where they lived and farmed together for another six years. In 1846, John was 19 and his brother Tostein 27. The brothers decided to seek their fortune, and maybe even a little fame, who knows, and traveled north to Wisconsin. They worked in the dairy industry for a few years, but the brothers knew that there was more out there for them than milking cows or churning butter. For one thing, there was gold. So I'm imagining the brothers staying together, and you got the yellow butter in one hand, and they're imagining yellow metal in the other. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's now, funny, yellow butter and yellow metal. Why would they? Yeah, I know what side wins. Let's yes, put it that way. They're just sitting on the farm doing and That's a decent living, but why not go out there and see if you can strike it rich? Yeah, right, a decent living, but kind of a predictable one. Whereas with the gold, who knows? Yeah, right? shoot, shoot the moon. Yeah. Or they said that back then. <laughs> yellow butter and yellow gold. I love it. <laughs> the gold rush was in full swing by 1851. The year the Torsteinson Rue brothers packed their saddlebags, kicked the soggy Wisconsin mud off their boots, gazed into the setting sun together dramatically, and drove a herd of dairy cows west, straight across the country to Placerville, California. John and Torstein had been bitten by the gold bug, and then they contracted that all-too-common ailment of the time, gold fever. The brothers had found a way to travel to California while being paid to do so, and they were more than happy to pan the mountain silt in search of nuggets, pebbles, maybe even a gold rock or two. Unfortunately, their success as miners, especially those a bit late to the panning party, <laughs> was fair to middling at best. The brothers never struck it rich via the yellow metal, but it wasn't from lack of trying. 
just simple bad luck or normal luck, really. I, I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Bad luck or normal luck? I don't think it's bad luck at all. I'd say normal or regular luck, just like all the other people that went out there. I mean, how many people went out there and, and struck it rich? I would say a, a small percentage. And um, unfortunately, the brothers were in the uh, <laughs> they were in the larger percentage percentage sorry of uh just normal luck yeah i think so and also with uh, i think they did have at least enough luck to make enough from gold that they could use that to kind of finance their next endeavor which i'm sure for a lot of folks was going back to what they knew but maybe for others trying new trades sure but uh yeah i i i wouldn't say it was bad luck i think if you if you call it bad luck then everybody had bad right luck, right right yeah good point <laughs> Well, so John wanted to strike out on his own and decided to return to his farming roots. He would homestead. During the 1860s, the U.S. government provided free 160-acre plots of vacant land to pioneers in return for those pioneers farming and tending the land. In 1860, John Torsteinson Rue became John Thompson and obtained just such a parcel of land, settling down to farm. John's piece of the expanding American pie was located in the Diamond Valley, which is just south of Genoa, Nevada, today. Back when Thomas, back when Thompson established his farm, it was called Mormon Station, an outpost in Utah territory. Why did he uh, change his name? Did he want to become more Americanized, or? Yeah, that's a good question. I I had sort of assumed that that was why he he chose to do that. I couldn't find out exactly why, but. We, I was able to uncover the, na- the person who he named himself after, and that was his stepfather, a man named Arthur Thompson, a man he no doubt respected and admired. Oh, that's kind of neat, kind of like a tribute to somebody that he really respected and admired. That's yeah, and maybe somebody who made a difference in his life when he was young. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So John Thompson married Agnes Singleton in 1866, and they had their only child a year later, a little boy named Arthur Thomas. John Thompson was a talented farmer who grew grains such as wheat and oats and also potatoes and hay. He also raised cattle and cared for horses. By all reports, Thompson was well-known and well-loved by his community, lending a hand when needed and teaching others about the joys of skiing. He also reportedly helped design and introduce irrigation networks to help make farming more efficient and increase the prosperity of his community. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Back in 1855, John came across an advertisement in the Sacramento Union newspaper, which read, People lost to the world. Uncle Sam needs a mail carrier. John Thompson decided to respond to that ad, to answer that mail call, so to speak, and took his first snowy step into legend. Mountain Man, Mail Carrier, and Hero. John Snowshoe Thompson began delivering mail for the U.S. Postal Service in 1856 and would continue to carry mail for the rest of his life. After spending his youth living and working on numerous farms, 
and then pursuing a more adventurous path with his brother herding cattle and then attempting to strike it rich mining gold, John seemed unable to return to the farming lifestyle. He now needed something more. John was not sure what that something was yet, but the possibilities of that advertised mail delivery job, carrying with it challenges, risks, high adventure, and above all, consistent unpredictability, must have checked a lot of boxes for this intrepid Norwegian American. And he jumped into his future with both snowshoes firmly stuck to his feet. We should mention here the type of snowshoes employed by John Thompson. These snowshoes were not the snowshoe many of us imagine today, which is some variety of flat device that straps onto regular shoes or boots and is, and is designed to disperse our weight over a wider area so we can walk across snow drifts without skiing into them. The snowshoes Thompson used were much more similar to skis of today. When he was a young boy growing up in Norway, everyone had a pair of these ski-like snowshoes and called them ski skates. These wide 10-foot-long skis were made of strong wood and weighed up to 25 pounds. Interestingly, the folks living in the Tahoe region of the time also referred to these long, wide, heavy skis as snowshoes. These skis were paired with a long pole made of sturdy wood. More on that pole a bit later. As Thompson prepared for his first trip as U.S. mail carrier in January of 1856, snow was softly falling in the town of Placerville, California. A small crowd had gathered for the historic event, wishing the daring and dashing blonde snowshoer the best of luck. Local men, women, and children shivered in the cold sunshine as John strapped on his ski-skate snowshoes. These well-wishers were hoping, dreaming, possibly even doubting, and almost certainly praying for his safe passage across snowy miles, up and over the towering peaks and winding through treacherous passes among the mighty Sierra Nevada mountains. Snowshoe Thompson would successfully navigate his maiden voyage from Placerville to Genoa and thereby begin a one-person tradition that would last the next 20 years. The man would become a living legend among locals and visitors alike, and his legend would expand and deepen with time. Snowshoe Thompson had a unique way of traveling through the Sierras, and we quote a local reporter of the time via snowshoethompson.org named Dan DeQuill of, of the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise who captured Thompson's style so well. He flew down the mountainside. He did not ride astride his pole or drag it to one side, as was the practice of other snowshoers, but held it horizontally before him after the manner of a tightrope walker. His appearance was graceful, swaying his balance pole from one side and the other in the manner that a soaring eagle dips its wings. Hot dog! That must have been an incredible sight. Seeing this tall, blonde man cresting a snowy hill or swerving around a sugar pine tree on giant 10-foot skis, his pole held in front of him, flying by with a soft whoosh and the fluttering of envelopes catching the bit of wind that snuck inside his mailbag. The style of Thompson's snowshoeing, which seemed more a combination of snowshoeing and skiing rather than straight snowshoeing, was complemented by his unique appearance on the mountainside. He always wore a Mackinac jacket, which was a heavy woolen button-up jacket, heavily napped and felted, and sometimes accented with a plaid design. Little style on the slopes? <laughs> <laughs> Mackinac jackets were originally provided by the U.S. government to Native American tribes, and the design suited Snowshoe Thompson's purposes perfectly. 
Thompson also wore a wide-brimmed hat to protect his face and neck from the sun shining above. He rubbed charcoal on his face as a natural sunscreen to protect his eyes from snow blindness and his skin from the sun's rays that reflected off the snow all around him. Thompson did not carry blankets or any other heavy articles on his journeys because he wanted to remain as lightweight as possible. The essentials included his jacket, hat, and charcoal, and also matches for starting fires, his trusty Bible, and a bare-bones supply of hearty snacks, including nuts and seeds, dried and cured meats, crackers, biscuits, and maybe even his own version of trail mix. Thompson was well aware that the less supplies he carried for himself, the more mail he could carry and deliver to others. And that's just the sort of person Snowshoe was. Always willing to go the extra mile for someone in need, whether it be for mail to delivery, or as we'll later see, something much more important. The 90-mile route Thompson traveled ran between Placerville, California, and what is now Genoa, Nevada. The trip took five days to complete, three days for the eastbound outward leg to Genoa, and two days for the return trip. The actual route Thompson traveled was named Johnson's Cutoff, and it was located approximately where Highway 50 runs today. All told, the vertical ascents and descents snowshoe climbed or skied down totaled over 10,000 feet, and all with a 50 to 80 and sometimes even a 100-pound mailbag. As if this weren't heroic enough, Snowshoe Thompson traveled this route twice per month for the next 20 years. This guy's pretty amazing. I can't imagine doing this route twice a month for 20 years, let alone have a 100-pound mailbag strapped to my back. This guy's uh, pretty heroic. Yeah, he, he really takes the, the word legend and legendary to a, a, just to another level. And I, I, I know it's, it's almost as if... I don't think, reading about him, it didn't seem like anyone else during the time did what he did. It was just him. Yeah, this guy's just... Just, just, just a wild man. Yeah, a wild <laughs> man, and just really amazing what, what he's doing. Yeah, yes. Especially in the 1850s. Yeah, incredible. Well, because his equipment predated the use of waxes, oils, or other substances used to reduce friction, Snowshoe had to manage his travel depending on weather and snow quality conditions. When it was icy, or the snow had crusted over a bit, Snowshoe knew it was time to fly. But when conditions became difficult due to inclement weather or even blizzards, Snowshoe also knew to take cover, protect himself and his mail, and then proceed when conditions allowed him to safely do so. And I, I read a little interesting story about Snowshoe in these situations. He didn't he always protected his mail, but as for himself, sometimes he would clear the find a flat rock, clear all the snow off of it, jump on that rock. And then proceed to do a Norwegian jig. <laughs> That's great. That's a funny sight to see. Guy with his snowshoes doing a little dance on a rock. Yes. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can assume he was lifting both his spirits and his core temperature. And maybe the, <laughs> lifting the spirits of the animals around him in the frozen snow. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who enjoyed the sight? <laughs> oh. Yes, Snowshoe was a mountain man in the truest sense of the word. He braved any and all winter weather challenges and stuck to his route without the help of even a compass. Thompson became an expert at reading local landmarks during the day and the stars above at night. In true legend fashion, local lore has it that Snowshoe Thompson found his way through those mountains without fail for all of those 20 years. Quoting the legend himself, There is no danger of getting lost in a narrow range of mountains like the Sierra if a man has his wits about him. As a man with his wits about him at all times, Snowshoe probably never did.
We will get into some legendary tales about Snowshoe Thompson in segment three. So strap on your ski skate snowshoe skis, grab your sturdy pole, holding it horizontally in front, of course, slip those tips over the crest of that mountain ridge, and hang on. Segment 3, The Viking of the Sierra. My brother Joe had to attend to some pressing issues, so I will be doing Segment 3 solo. I hope everybody likes it. John Snowshoe Thompson followed a career path filled with excitement and adventure, and the tales surrounding him, obscured by snow flurries and blanketed in the frosty fogs of time, burnish a legend already sparkling like another jewel in the Sierra. One such tale has Thompson flying at high speed off a 180-foot cliff and sticking the landing as if he were ski jumping in the Olympics. Another version has the length of his longest jump as 180 feet. Both impressive accomplishments. We're not sure if either one of these tall Thompson tales are true, but we're guessing old Snowshoe jumped off plenty of giant snow-covered hills on nearly every trip he'd made in the winter. This is the Sierra Nevada mountain range, after all. The height and distance of those jumps were anyone's guess, but we're guessing he pulled off more than a few incredible feats. Many when no one was even around to be impressed. Another funny story has Snowshoe skiing by a group of mountaineers struggling to make their way through snow, having barely made it past the snow line. When one of the struggling men asked Thompson how many more miles of snow there were ahead, probably hoping for an encouraging response, Snowshoe hollered out something like, there are 45 miles more of it, as he continued on his way, barely slowing down. Snowshoe was also known to be something of a showman. He would ski down a nearby mountain, with folks gathering somewhere midway down to watch. As he approached the crowd at some neck-breaking speed, Snowshoe would swerve in their direction, and then right before colliding, he would lift those skis straight up in the air and fly right over their heads. Legend has it that he would do so with a big grin on his face. There must have been more than a few gasps from that crowd, and maybe even a scream or two, as they felt the wind of Thompson's snowshoe skis blow across their faces. Throughout the backcountry, wild animals were more common and more numerous back in those days. Snowshoe Thompson must have encountered wildlife of all sorts. He never carried any weapons, but then again, he probably didn't need to. Animals encountering this intrepid Norwegian American, flying by them on giant skis and holding a large pole horizontally, were more likely to flee, or maybe even gaze in astonishment, than attack him. There is one story that has Snowshoe cruising by a pack of wolves feeding on an animal carcass. As he approached, the wolves sat back on their haunches and howled at the moon. When they did not attack as he expected, and instead returned to feeding, Snowshoe must have breathed a mountain-sized sigh of relief. Snowshoe Thompson was a hero to individuals in peril and their grateful families. There is no way to tell how many times these instances occurred during snowy Tahoe winters, 
but we are guessing it's more than a few. Mountaineers, miners, and other travelers would get lost in blizzard conditions or perhaps hole up in an abandoned cabin, getting snowed in. Snowshoe would find them along his route and escort them back to safety by having them stand on the backs of his skis. He'd have the person put one foot on each ski, wrap their arms around Snowshoe himself, and then hold on for dear life. Literally. On one particular occasion in 1859, described by Jeff Moag in his excellent Adventure Journal article, Snowshoe found three men trapped in a blizzard, and they were stranded miles into a snowy pass. He brought each man down the mountain separately on the back of his skis, returning to the desolate scene in what must have been extremely difficult conditions, with little regard to his own comfort or safety. In another life-saving adventure, Thompson came upon a prospector who was near death. Snowshoe sped off on his skis to get help. When he returned with some medical personnel, they realized the man's frozen legs would have to be amputated. Since this operation required anesthesia, which in those days meant chloroform to knock you out cold, the closest chloroform was in Sacramento, on the other side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Thompson didn't think twice. He shot out of there, grabbed his snowshoes, and traveled across the mountain range and back, making it back in time for the doctor to save the man's life. Despite days and weeks turning to months and years of his life dedicated to carrying mail, Snowshoe Thompson was never compensated by the U.S. government for his efforts. During his time in the mountains, Thompson always assumed that eventually Uncle Sam would make everything right because that's just the way things worked. And he was also a farmer, of course, as well. Eventually, with no money from the federal government arriving and no sign of such on the horizon, Snowshoe did what he always did. He took matters into his own hands. Traveling to Washington, D.C. in 1872, Thompson met with numerous senators and government officials, explaining the situation to them or pleading his case, depending on one's perspective. Visiting Washington was expensive even in those days, with Snowshoe's lobbying efforts dragging on with no end in sight and his living expenses piling up, he eventually had to return home to his ranch in Diamond Valley. Thompson continued to lobby Congress for the past compensation for a few more years, but his efforts never resulted in any monetary compensation. One year, he even presented a petition signed by numerous state officials to members of Congress, but sadly, even that was not enough. Snowshoe passed away on May 15th, 1876. He died from pneumonia that resulted from appendicitis. He was only 49 years old, but what a 49 years. Snowshoe Thompson was a legend and a hero. Above all, he was a man who always put others before himself, which is something we can all aspire to. His magnificent feats inspired admiration and appreciation beginning in those days when he sped across those snowy trails nearly 100 years ago and continuing until today. As we honor his life and story, we want to thank Snowshoe for demonstrating how living free, helping others, and respecting nature creates a truly wonderful and legendary life.
that's our show for today, and thank you for listening. We appreciate the support. We'd like to thank our information sources, including Mark McLaughlin and Mick Mac Media and thestormking.com, Jeff Moag and adventurejournal.com, Jill Bede and snowshoethompson.org, Kim Harris and visitcarsonvalley.org, and The Saga of Lake Tahoe, Volume 2, by E.B. Scott. Music produced by Jeff Harvey and Julius H. Sound effects courtesy of pixabay.com. A very special thanks to Squeak Steel and her ragtime piano. Questions, comments, or a friendly note to say hello? Please email us anytime at legendsoflaketahoe at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back in the mountains soon.